actually something I'd be interested in. Uh, Brooks, you always um, use uh, to used or uh, you did at least for some time try to explain um, the subject in relation to some concept of the virtual. And um, so my understanding of the virtual is purely based on uh, Bergson. And in my understanding of Bergson, the, what you said wouldn't make really sense. I'd be interested in um, hearing how you see the virtual functioning in Anti-Oedipus. So how I've understood the virtual um, is uh, anything that is essentially something that comes from the interaction from lower level things. Uh, very shitty way of putting screen on a on a computer doesn't just display things, it displays virtual screen of what is basically the result of a thousand incredibly complicated interactions per second across my entire computer. In the same way, the subject is the virtual of basically all of my interactions across desiring and social machines in any given moment. And that uh, sort of fount that comes out, that, that virtual item, is very real. I, it's, I very much have always loved uh, Deleuze's sort of take on that is uh, uh, it's real uh, but not actual, ideal not abstract uh, which is a complex way of talking about the virtual um, and I, I haven't spent time recently rereading this and I have, I'm, I'm only halfway through my copy this but like an hour so please forgive me if I'm misspeaking on any of this but that's essentially where I've played with it. Um, a, a lot of this stems from, uh, that sort of take stems from how I view people when they're playing games or doing my VR stuff or interacting with things that I've built. The ability to manipulate someone and have their, their what we would call sort of classical subjectivization happen is something that's incredibly manipulative. Now, it's not... Uh, that it's not them in that moment. It's also not that it is them. Uh, it's the virtual. The, that's what makes sort of the subject exist in any given place where we're able to be many different things across all of it. And so if we were to take that sort of idea and apply it to Deleuze, I see that being, um, as they talk about in this chapter, uh, the desiring machines meeting the social machines. That moment or that horizon between the two where the desiring machines are being turned into or connected to, just before that is when the subject is created. That, to me, is the virtual layer because the social machines coming from our molar investments above and the larger interactions we have with other people that are incredibly complex in millions of different ways we can't understand, connecting to our own desiring machines that are doing millions of things. And in that, I get to pretend that I exist for a while. And often, I'm actually completely not concerned with my own existence. And in those moments, uh, that's when the, the sort of virtual subjectivization, uh, I think, is uh, maybe least strong, but it, it's when it's sort of operating. It. I'd have a different yeah. thing, though. Because mm -hmm. <clears throat> when you're saying that what you're seeing in the on the computer is the virtual. Yes. I would tend to say that it's it, it is what you do not see on the computer screen that is the virtual. The virtual is is like a reserve in in a sense, you know, it's a the reserve the, the potential the, the the virtual 
is a reserve of potential. It's potentialities. So basically a computer, you know, it, it performs certain tasks, but it could perform other tasks. This is the virtual at the, uh, of the computer. Right. And, um, in, into this, uh, the arrangement uh, or the organization of the potential that makes them pass into the actual, you have a certain expression of, of inten- uh, intensities that actually arise uh, can be observed. So in a computer, for example, it's in the common sense, you know, what's on the screen is the virtual. But uh, what's on, on the screen is the actualized potentialities or of the this object as a partial object and not as a full object because you cannot exhaust the uh, okay. object or the potential. We're, we're not talking about two different object. things, though. We're talking about now two different things. I should have been a lot more clear. Uh, uh, I, I'm, let, let me restate slightly. Um, the, the screen as is is a surface of potentiality. Yes. The thing that is displayed on the screen is the virtual. There's a, there's a difference here. One is uh, things that have been, uh, let's say, perceived uh, in that moment of perception that has been integrated into a desiring machine that has been uh, sort of taken apart and made actual, let's say hardened, concretized. Uh, that's no longer the virtual. Right on the other side of that, that sort of uh, preeminent uh, pre-concrete moment is when it is virtual. It's still very real. That's... that's oh, yeah. Because that... the reality of an object or a thing, let's say a thing because it's not objectified yet, uh, the potential, uh, the, the virtual and the actual are, are both real because they are yes. the reality of this, this thing as a I wouldn't. I would say a totality, but like you know, it's it, everything it can encompass. So, like for example, a human uh, has a lot of virtual that, but only a small part is being actualized, and the actual is refeeding back into the virtual at some point because you know, uh, contrary to an, a computer that is like the, the with the strict hardware, a human is adaptative it changes so like you know the virtual of the human is always changing as it processes into certain forms of individuation so i'm wondering about this um, screen example because i can't really square that with Bergson at all um and specifically because i think like i don't think there's much of a difference between like a screen and like any other image and any surface of inscription yes sorry i didn't get that you were very silent oh okay sorry as as any surface of inscription yes the screen is one inscription amongst many Yes, and then and then the other thing is that uh, in Bergson, the virtual, as far as he actually talks about the virtual, definitely only exists in relation to consciousness. Uh, yeah, but in Deleuze, they don't. Put yeah, that, that's that's the funny thing because I think uh, there is a bit of that in Deleuze and uh, how Deleuze reads. Bergson as well, because um, the relation between consciousness and 
and the virtual and the actual would be that they are basically two sides of consciousness. Um, so you have so basically the virtual has to pass through the subject to become uh, to become actualized. That's the um, that's the uh, relationship that Deleuze reads into Bergson in Bergsonism, I think. And that's why I say that my understanding, at least in Deleuze's reading of Bergson, it doesn't really make sense to say that the subject exists in the virtual or is virtual because it's much more that these two ontological realms are separated by the subject or exist, are defined in relation to the subject. Okay. But I think that, you know, you are, um, it, it's different types of ontologies. And it, in Deleuze, it's not the transcendence of the consciousness of the subject. It's the, the transcendence of the imminent plane that is producing the subject. So there's there's a slight difference there, but I, in your explanation that you just give us, uh, you're going back to a more Husserlian kind of understanding of consciousness. So I don't know if there's a, you know, I never analyzed the difference between Bergson and Deleuze, but Deleuze is, um, consciousness arises from the plane of eminence and it's, it's a, uh, it, it's a result. It's not something that is that transcends consciousness. It's it's not, you know, it's not the core of its ontology. It's something that is being produced by you know the flux and matter and your organization. So I I don't think Bergson would pose the subject as transcendent as well because like these. Yeah, but but as I said, uh, the the I just posted in chat because uh, Jack asked uh, where I would position the passive synthesis synthesis in this, and if I would just translate what I understand of um, Deleuze's understanding of Bergson into Antiochus, I would say that what where Berg, uh, where Deleuze identifies the subject in Bergson between the actual and the uh, virtual. There he positions the uh, the passive synthesis. Like the passive synth the passive synthesis are exactly what actualizes the virtual, and um, that's actually where where also where time is produced through through the process. Like that's the whole thing of process, right? Production is actualizing the virtual. But that 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 brings in the problem where to position the the um, the subject. But I would say that the subject is in that sense actual, because or, or or the subject might be the feedback loop that that feeds back into the virtual. I don't know. That's actually kind of where I'm what I'm getting at with. Um, with the question when I ask where is the virtual in, in anti-Oedipus because um, by deplacing the subject in relation to where Deleuze places it in Bergson um, there's stuff happening with the relationship between the actual and the virtual that I can't really figure out yet and I'm a bit wary of um, assuming the relationship between the actual the virtual and the subject to be too straightforward I don't know. Exactly. 
But let's go back to uh, let's let's get another example because now we're <clears throat> getting stuck into. The I, I, I like... genuinely felt like uh, there's that scene, uh, Simpsons, uh, Homer's trying to get Mr. Burns' package. I'm Mr. Burns. I'm here to get my package. All right, Mr. Burns, and what's your first name? I don't know. Is uh <laughs> really how I felt. I didn't say I had a complete philosophical treatise, Lou. <sighs> but if we want to go, what? To... I thought you were asking for my musings, and now I'm going over Bergsonism and trying to, to go over everything. All right. So to give another example, let's go back to anti-Oedipus. And, then, you know, where, where is anti-Oedipus as, you know, as a model? So a model is never something that is actualized. You know, it's something that, you know, can uh, and will uh, belong to the virtual. So, for example... Uh, the Oedipus model of psychoanalysis is something that takes place into the virtual. It is through different means, different instrument, different you know exercises, um, confession or whatever on the on the, the side of the the, the 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 subject or the patient that it can be actualized. So, uh, if we take this model, uh, Oedipus, or we take you know phallocratic or you know. Um, patriarchal models, they are into the virtual. They need certain dispositives, certain apparatus to become actual. And the actual, it actually, it, it's it actually, like it's it's weird to say, like I'm saying actual and actually, but the, the actual feeds back into the virtual by proving it or disproving it into a set of mutual adjustments. So there's always this play between the virtual and the actual. It's never like a straight, you know, linear relationship between the virtual to the actual. The actual is feeding back constantly into the virtual. So, and, you know, if we wanted to have like a different model than uh, Oedipus, we would, it would still be into the virtual and would be actualized. Or, you know, this model could be the result of observation of the actual and description and mapping cartography and would and then you know the, its representation would go back into the virtual um i have a question about the virtual um so i'm trying to like uh, is it is it is it is there kind of an analogy between what we're talking calling the virtual and the um psychic plane that might be in like lacan where this like real um the like intrusion of the real is something that doesn't ever happen because our brains can't handle it. Uh, no. So no. no. Okay. Um, I I think uh, and and anyone who wants to jump in, I know we have a few people who are more versed in Lacan and Deleuze than I am, but uh, Deleuze in all of my readings has basically completely shut out that idea that there is this imperceptible underneath layer. And instead, uh, he he re reorients everything towards being this place, this plane of possibility. Uh, the the idea of there being a real that's impenetrable and that we could not directly perceive because of how we've gained knowledge and how our knowledge works, which is sort of the Lacanian idea, totally not within Deleuzian thought. Okay, so okay. That makes a lot of sense, but 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 I'm still getting the impression that like 
even if Deleuze wants there to be like like he doesn't um agree with Lacan's like conception of what you know the real is I still have the impression that he's borrowing a lot uh, from Lacan and when, he, when we were talking about these sort of like virtual and these psychic plane things, but, but maybe that's just because I'm misunderstanding the virtual. And, and I was wondering if we could like, it, 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 whether or not there's a connection there. To, to just briefly interject, it's important to keep in mind too, though, that they're, they're laying out syllogisms and paralogisms, right? So certain aspects of like what Lacan will argue whether or not it's happening virtually, right? There's a point they're making about a paralogism happening. For instance, the the use of the phallus and lack. I, I guess because what where, maybe where I'm like hung up are the other sort of sections where they talk about like, um, you know, Lacan has this system that distributes lack everywhere, but then the flip side of that system is the you know, the what is it real disorganization of desire? I think is the direct quote. It sort of it sort of reads like there's there's a lot of this book that's like rehabilitating that idea, these ideas from Lacan, and then and sort of adding on to them, right? Undermining certain parts about like, you know, yeah, Lacan was wrong when he said that the real is this unknowable thing that intrudes into psychic plane, and you know, in and it's always this like calamity that you can't verbalize for whatever Lacan said, um, but we can take these ideas from him about like, uh, you know, nah, I'm out of my depth, but <laughs> I would appreciate other input about this problem. Can you guys hear me? Yes. We do. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think the calamity part is because of the, um, personalization of the, the flow of the symbolic. So, um, when the subject, is um, back into a struggle, uh, structure of a, cent of a centralized self or um, an ego that's present in the subjectivity, then all the movement of signification um, kind of begins to bind uh, to the ego and all of a sudden you know, whereas I think there's the displacement that was talked about earlier in a different perceptual system keeps the subject more fluid and less reified by the movements through the, um, the symbolic and the imaginary of the subject. I think what happens is that there are snags in the imaginary of the subject um, within the Lacanian perceptual consciousness system um, versus the ebbs and flows that uh, is structured um, or is laid out in the cartography here of the uh, of the uh, anti-Oedipus. I'm latching onto that word snags. I think I think that's a good way to describe um, the one of the problems they have with it. They talk about uh, the sort of traps laid out for desire. Yeah, I'm trying to think about that too, around um, whether there's any excess that's present for the subject surplus that the lack then, um, you know, gets snagged on. Um, so the insecurity there by way of the surplus that's, that's provided by the uh, exogenous system of capital.
it causes this short circuiting with the snags for the subject. I don't know if you guys can hear me or if that's breaking up or. No, no, we can we can hear you. I I did also link to uh, Caldwell has a great uh, few paragraphs. It's a short uh, piece called Schizophrenizing with Han, where he just literally answers this question and kind of breaks down a very top line Lacanian belief, how they sort of took it to task, where they agreed and where they like. The, the thread that kind of pulls, if we want to go through psychoanalysis to schizoanalysis, the thread is about uh, Lacan taking Freud, but decentering the subject. Uh, that was his entire play. He, it, the idea of the unconscious, as uh, just to quote, um, um, Lacanian disciple Jacqueline Miller puts it, Lacan took the unconscious not as a container, but rather as something existent outside itself that is connected to a subject who has a lack of being. Unconscious desire is caused by this lack of being in the other self and is directed towards attaining absolute recognition of this impossible completion in the eyes of the other, uh, the mother in the case of the Oedipal complex. Every articulation of this need, however, is fragmented by the demand to have it recognized. Uh, as Lacan famously said, desire is the desire of the other, uh, the object petit a. Um, this this at lack, this thing you can never have. Um, and as he goes on, while Deleuze and Guattari support Lacan's decentering of the Cartesian subject, they find certain elements of the formulation of desire reactive from a Nietzschean perspective. By defining desire in terms of lost objects, Lacan, and psychoanalysis generally, forces desire into an idealistic conception. Rather than remaining stuck within this pessimistic formation, Deleuze and Guattari see Lacan's idea of the object A as a means through which to bring about reversal of the situation. Note, they claim, Lacan's admirable theory of desire appears to us to have two poles, one related to the object petit a as a desiring machine, which defines desire in terms of production, thus going beyond both any idea of need and any idea of fantasy, and the other related to the great other as a signifier, which reintroduces a notion of lack. Uh, and this is the thread of sort of how they move their way through. Yeah, so what I'm distilling then is, you know, the, the ontological difference, I guess, that comes through regarding like Lacan is this uh, okay. perception of, of seeking. There's always like the missing piece. Whereas um, <clears throat> I feel like uh, the Deleuzian Guattari Guattari framework is more about the imminence of the um, uh, the abundance where the subject can choose amidst the abundance that's actually here. That's actually a really fair way to put it. Um, the the way they basically read Lacan, and again, I say they because I don't know if it's Guattari or Deleuze who did this. Uh, I would lean towards it being Deleuze with Guattari coming in to bring up some of those bona fides. But um, the, the, the reading of it is that uh, Lacan said that the object petit a and the subject, uh, the unconscious, produce lack. That, that phrasing is a really unique one when it comes to sort of the history of psychoanalysis and the history of sort of how we believe perception works, because that put it into the mindset of production rather than just a Freudian style of this is what we're born with. You're, you're like this. This is the human condition, blah, blah, blah. This is savage, blah, blah, blah. all that shit. This is much more, hey, 
uh, actually, as you go through life and you have these experiences, uh, this was Lacan's idea, uh, you go through the mirror stage. Uh, in that moment, you have the break with the real and the imaginary becomes a thing. And then at some point, you uh, realize the Oedipal complex is real and you get, like, over time, as you develop these things, you produce lack. And that's when Deleuze went, oh, well, what if it's not just lack you produce? What if we're just producing desire all the time? And so he just kind of flipped it. Instead of producing lack, it's this positive force, this life-affirming passion, libido, and we're not producing lack, we're producing that positive force. It's kind of a flip of that. Even though it seems like it's not super connected, really it feels like it's directly inspired, to me at least. So then maybe to bring it back to what we were talking about with Lou and the virtual, you know, I think I'm or I think I'm wrong about this, but it seems like this whole like great other and signifiers sounds really virtual. It, it sounds like they're talking about a sort of like a virtual plane, especially the word signifier, which to me it's like a hundred percent reaching towards that kind of reality. But I'm maybe I'm wrong. This is going to be a semantics thing, and we should probably try to figure out other terms to use for this because I think we may be stuck in a semantics thing. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm saying that because, uh, for example, the signifier is is something that's not real. Um, but I would argue, and Roger, back me up here if I'm right, uh, Deleuze would almost argue that it becomes real in the sense that at some point you integrate that into your unconscious because those signifiers are the molar investments that end up sort of embedding themselves as lack within your desiring machines, which is what this chapter was kind of going over. Well, I mean, you know, the signifier is is always real. It, like everything is real. If it's if it composes a series, at one point it's becoming real. Um, though the signifier is not into the actual, it would be into the virtual because yes. you know it's into the the the, the structure of semiotics and. But um, it it can be actualized though. You know, it can be actualized through different processes. Okay, I think I'm starting to see. But let's take let's take uh, Lacan's master signifier as a very specific thing that actually they. I'm going to try to find this section. Um, we're not far off from these moments that they actually just talked about all. While I'm doing that, someone else should probably respond so I can mute myself and you're not hearing me click away. It's tough because I feel like I'm missing um, some of the background for virtuality like i haven't read bergson so i don't know that and i haven't read any of deleuze's stuff about what what he specifically would call virtual and and not um so i I, I think i will all right all right bet <laughs> i'm saying that's the one where deleuze like lays it out i feel his whole analysis of what is structuralism and what what do we call structures and it's like it's a master class and I, I always quote it i think they're quoting it in the chat as well <laughs> But uh, sorry, guys, I came late, so don't listen to me. Welcome. We're happy to have you here. Did you change your mic? You sound different. I'm in my, like, professional studio setup. <laughs> you sound so suave. <laughs> so, so what prompted the virtual thing exactly? I think literally the question about what is the virtual. And then Lou decided to ask me a question, and I'm sitting here, not enough coffee, and then I get down the road, and then he pulled the rug out from under me, and now we're on some other. Hey, I did nothing wrong. I just wanted to talk about Bergson. 
<laughs> Hashtag Lou did nothing wrong. No, I, I think I asked because um, Brooks talked a few times about how he basically thinks the subject exists in the virtual and I couldn't really square that with um, my understanding um, of the virtual or the subject, so we just went off from my comment on that. But I think the, what we're doing is like we're switching from like one system of thought to the other, right? You know, maybe there's, I, I don't know, like Freud that much, and I don't know Lacan that much, but uh I don't think they, they respond to the same axioms in the sense that those models, you know, for example, we're just like considering the real. Um, depend if you write the real with a big R or small R, uh, in Lacanian, the real is opposed to the symbolic. and But in um, in delusion thought, the, the real is, is, is not this opposition. So to um, rein it back in around the virtual, I have a question that's kind of like with presenting a sort of uh, <clears throat> uh, contemplative thing that I was thinking about today. Like if a schizes is synonymous with like, let's say a, um, you know, like a gate opening up in terms of circuits or like a cut in, you know, the, the Lacanian speak um, where there is um, an opening to a different flow, like a displacement. If the skiz causes a kind of displacement, I was thinking about, is the virtual then what arises um, within, you know, the subject's um, movement through the flow, through the flow, like, is there a, the subject moving through the, the flow that opens up from the skiz, is that a virtual? Um, the the movement no the movement is the actual configuration and reconfiguration. What is virtual, for example, is the what is being deposited in the pass of this action. You know, as you're going, if you move, like you know, you, your question is really general, but like if you're if you're somebody that moves on the street, you're walking on the street. So you, you're actualizing different movements, you know, with your legs, with your arms, keeping balance and all of this. But the result of this action is being recast into the virtual as a form of memory or as a form of habit. The habit becomes the template of your next move. So this learning phase or these those feedback loops are passing stuff from the actual to the virtual and then back to the actual. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, this is a more like a Bergsonian understanding of uh, of like how time evolves. But I think like some of uh, some of Deleuze like took uh, hints of that also. But I think I think you're right. I think uh, you know the the, uh, the intuition you had there, huh? intuition for Bergson. But the intuition you had there is uh, is right. But it's it's just like we need to be careful into like just cutting. At the right place, what uh, belongs to the actual and what belongs to the virtual. 
And both movements are really real. You know, you're walking down the street. This is real. But the habits of you walking, of learning to walk, learning to keep your balance, knowing your way around into the city, it deposits itself back into memory and into temporal blocks, for example. You know, it becomes like a part of the past, but the past is still acting uh, or still being potentially acting by being into the virtual but also like the virtual virtual structures of things i feel like it, it can be really it can get really complicated to think about but like i think it also applies to if you even just think about what marx was trying to do when he was discovering the abstract subjective essence of labor and stuff or you think about economics or something or you know plotting a chart of what's happening in the stock market or gdp or all these things like you could you could argue that different ways of us us understanding these things are wrong or incorrect or they're not granular enough or they're inconsistent whatever but on some level when you plot uh you know points on a graph and then you put connections between those points it, it's it's too, a bit too simplistic to just say well that's just that doesn't that isn't real that doesn't exist because i think what writers like Deleuze and others are trying to say with the virtual is like and with that essay on structuralism is like you can you there is a kind of structure in in the what is it's it's real without being actual you don't see it in the same way that you see uh a, a glass that you're is right in front of you that you can hold and touch but if you map out these points and uh, you can you can affect it you can change it and it has real effects in the world so to say that it's not real it's like there's a there's a virtuality to it that exists that we are we just have to kind of uh you know approach maybe you know in the bergsonian sense in an intuitive sense there's other ways of doing it but that like you know the, the, there's a virtuality to like the capitalist system or to any institution or to our own subjectivity or chains of flows that can be mapped out and you, again you can be more or less accurate but they're not not real like the map isn't just this piece of paper that you're looking at there is a there's a kind of like being and we are in that metastable state at various levels you know Mm -hmm. This we totally agree, and that's what we uh, concluded earlier, just before you came. Uh, the virtual is the is very real, you know, There's, and that's the difference between the Lacanian uh, understanding that puts the real onto one side and the symbolic onto the other side. For Deleuze, it's uh, the virtual and the actual are still real, you know, as they come into series. Um, for capitalism, you know, we're talking about the master signifier in, uh, I think it was in Lacan, so it's the, the phallus. But in, you know, in capitalism, it would be the capital, you know. So the, the model of, of the capital is the, it's into the virtual. The diagram of it all is into the virtual. And, you know, when you're saying that you're, you're looking at a graph and you're looking at those uh, uh, bear or bull tendencies, I don't know much about this, but this is what I know. Uh, and you're trying to uh, see where the points or the line of the graph is going to go. Um, by using the models um, that has been learned that, that are into the virtual, you actualize them into a graph. But this actualization into a graph allows for more potential to be actualized in the sense that you will arrange your action according to this mapping that you've done. So this plan, this planning becomes really actual and really real in the sense that it, it affects the way we are into the world. So basically, you know, it's the same with uh, Oedipus. If, uh, you know, you spend enough time on the couch and they're saying it's the fault of your daddy, well, you will believe it's the fault of, of, of your daddy and you will act accordingly. 
He will change your representation, change your ideas, change your ways or not, but still have this fault, you know, and this, this, this problem and this slack that they are trying to get into your head, which is never there. But if you believe that it's there, it, it starts to act. Same thing with Santa Claus, same thing with God, you know. Uh, maybe they're not real existing entities, but because they exist into the virtual, they can have actual consequences. And same thing for the map, you know. The, mo the moment you map something, you will read the r reality uh, in the form of the map. So the map actually is a model. It's a virtual model that gives you uh, potential usage of the territory. Okay, I've got to jump in just really quick because one of the... So, because Lou kept asking things that are... Uh, and I've gotten stuck on trying to figure out how to answer, Lou, the original question, even while you're going through all this. One of the things that has come up even again in this section uh, is his readings of Proust. And I went back and found, and there's a lot of uh, essays he's written on Proust in general, but he does talk about In Search of Lost Time in this book, I think in, even in the section, um, and he does place... Uh, he does place the narrator and he talks about it as though we are uh, subject at the mercy of the signs and symbols of the world, that the, the, the pre-conscious informs us of these things, that our subject exists just prior to sort of how we directly interact. It's how they talk about Proust, for sure. Uh, super early in the book, they go through this, I want to say page 68, uh, read some of that. Sorry, this text recognition on this is terrible. In this regard, it is possible that Charlou's course in admonition is prophetic a lot. We care about our old grandmother, you little shit. Or what does in fact take place in search of lost time? One in the same story with infinite variations. It is clear the narrator sees nothing, hears nothing, that he is a body without organs or like a spider poisoned in the web observing nothing, but responding to the slightest sign, the slightest vibration by springing on its prey. Everything begins with nebula, statistical holes whose outlines are blurred, molar, or collective formations comprising singularities distributed haphazardly. Living room, group of girls, a landscape. Then, within these nebulae, or these collective sides, take shape. Series are arranged. Persons figure in these series under strange laws of lack, absence, asymmetry, exclusion, non-communication, vice, and guilt. Next, everything becomes blurred again. Everything comes apart, but this time in a molecular and pure multiplicity where the partial objects, boxes, vessels, all have positive determination and enter into aberrant communication following a transversal that runs through the whole work. An immense flow that each partial object produces and again reproduces and cuts at the same time. More than vice, says Proust, it is madness and its innocence that disturbs us. Schizophrenia is the universal. The great artist is indeed the one who scales the schizophrenic wall and reaches the land of the unknown where he is no longer belongs to any time, milieu, or school. The entire paragraph is basically him poetically taking the narrator's sort of journey through the three syntheses. Is how I, I read that. And it's how I read that then, but now I have a much better grasp of that. And so when, the, when they say everything becomes blurred again and the, the narrator sees these things happen. That's 
that's where the subject comes in. That's the subject, at least as I read it. Did I go on too long of a tangent? You're all right. All right. Yeah, that was good. Can you post the uh, page reference there? Yes. I'll, I'll copy over the as much as I can. This text, I, I do not. Uh, I do not. Uh, yeah, you know, something that I was thinking, though, again, and I try to see how this theory stuff uh, affects me and has an impact on me is that uh, the complexity and the excessiveness of anti-Oedipus that's working through uh, my subjectivity, I think, has a lot to do with this virtual actual access. So, um, you know, sometimes I'll have a moment where I'm just like, wait a second, isn't this anti-Oedipus kind of working in an ad hoc way, like it's summarizing all the things that I'm actually already experiencing um, and doing. Am and I already, always and already, uh, given the, you know, the structure of the ether of uh, the demands of the economic world um, functioning as an anti-Oedipus? to a certain extent, and then by looping back into the theory, which is virtual, um, you know, my subjectivity then has to deal with the, the skiz away from the virtual back into the actual, and then, then there's this kind of dialectic that's happening there. Um, I would just say one thing. The anti-Oedipus is not a structure or a model. It's actually the criticism of the political ecology and uh, political economy of uh, psychoanalysis in the sense that, you know, it contests this model of a lack. So the anti-Oedipus is a way to deconstruct this so something else can arise. But it, 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 there's no prescriptive uh, or, you know, um, expected outcome into applying or thinking into the way that anti-Oedipus is. Right, but as the, as the critique of the Oedipus, which is like what was mentioned earlier, a snag in um, one not really understanding the demands of the situated perspective uh, well and getting into like the, the sort of um, a confusion and a fog around the subject, uh, the anti-Oedipus is kind of there to inject, but it's excessive in its complexity. And then somehow, um, you know, as the side effects fall away, or one tarries through, there's a kind of, there's, a, there's quite a bit of negative, I wouldn't say theology, but the negative sort of aspect of continental philosophy to then kind of brush off and you know, understand the, um, uh, the, the function of actualizing the virtual. Uh, I think we've got to be really careful here. Like Roger's saying, it's not like they create an anti-Oedipus to oppose Oedipus any more than Nietzsche creates like an anti-Christ to oppose Christ. Like 
when they're talking about anti-Oedipus, like they're talking about like de-Oedipalizing and, and like the syllogisms versus the paralogisms on that. Yeah, to like, quote to quote the book, um, how they talk about Oedipus is, we are so molded by Oedipus that we find it hard to imagine another use, and even the three familial neuroses do not escape this use. Uh, it becomes nevertheless apparent that schizophrenia teaches us a singular extra-Oedipal lesson and reveals to us an unknown force, the disjunctive synthesis. An imminent use. Uh, they, they go through, the intention here is that Oedipus is this idea, concept, that as damaging as it is, actually makes everything else sort of form. Uh, think of it like, I, I think of it like Ice Nine. Uh, thanks to Jack, I recently reread uh, Cat's Cradle. Uh, the idea... Mm -hmm. Of ice nine is uh, it's the subject. You drop it in water, any water becomes instantly ice. Now it, it's actually kind of a fairly realistic theoretical thing because that's how crystalline structures are created. So you have this idea that upon entering turns everything else Oedipal, and it's because of how Oedipus teaches itself. Because what it does is it basically, and they go over this, the Oedipal triangle informs the father. The son is sort of born with this original sin, and the son is the one who gives him this Oedipal complex. Uh, I am jealous of my son because he's spending more time with my wife. He's sucking on her tit. He's, 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 he's doing these things with her. I, he wants her. He wants to fuck her. He wants to kill me. I have Oedipal uh, aid of my son. This kind of thing that is, is visited on me, but I'm taught that it's my son who's doing it to me. When it's not, that's not reality. Me doing it to actually him. Um, but because we have that sort of thing inserted in us as an idea that actually, no, you, well, you wanted to fuck your own mom too and kill your dad. It's like, oh shit, I did. And then suddenly we have this cyclical sort of self-replicating idea that is Oedipus. They're saying, no, the first task of schizoanalysis, and that's trying to bring us back to this section, uh, the first task is actually to go into and figure out where the desiring machines are connected and what is being replaced at that first stage. Because we have the three syntheses, and we have the... I don't think you did. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, sometimes I get distracted. Um... But see, that's a line of flight that, that, is, you know, that is part of that project, to go back into that narrative and thread it back through loop it through and and uh so it's in you know the investment then goes back through language and i think this text tries to uh create a skiz you know away from that uh maybe i mean it's a it's developing a whole methodology in that like it's i don't think they're trying to I don't think they're trying to do Lacanianism, if that made sense, any more than they're trying to do psychoanalysis. They're talking about, in many ways, like what psychoanalysis has the potential to be, but there's a problem with psychoanalysis. There's a lot of problems with psychoanalysis, one of which is that the use of the Oedipus complex, and in this sense, like it's not just the Oedipus complex. They're very clear that the same thing can be done with Hamlet in that. The way that this um, this function of power, if I can be a little Foucauldian for a moment, the way that this works with as a function of power is to um, is to reduce the social to the familial and the familial to this um, this sort of stage play um, in a representation of how 
basically how one interacts with authority and like desire and this way that there's just like a, a sense of castration and that right like there's this problem of instead of talking about deprivation or like how things are blocked and unable to connect we instead will um, paralogistically take it for granted that things are absent we it's a to be sort of banal about it, it's about missing the forest for the trees in this model because we're dealing with representations and more concretely representations of representations which is also problematic because that affects how we understand the unconscious so like especially like with like the depersonalization like we were saying earlier like if with the unconscious as factory and as a passive series of syntheses that that move alone is already very different because like that's not your id and your ego having a, a conflict with one another that produces anxiety or narcissism or like uh where they say later earlier on actually it's not a problem of the neurotic or the psychotic whose whose ego is um fighting with the id like that's not how they're understanding desire and how that that has a relationship with the social and with the production uh with the unconscious as a productive force right so that was really clear jack i appreciate that and um yeah i'm beginning to to see things in that way so i appreciate uh you know the clarification there um, if we want to go on to this just a little bit more, um, I don't know where it is into the English text, but they're referring to uh, to psychiatrists, Pankow and Bethel M. It's like in the 150 page in, in French. But what they're saying is that what they were trying to do into this um, non-adipializing uh, process of uh, treating patients was to lead patients into recognizing desire and the, 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 this, this unconscious desire. But the recognition was not a way to find a fulfillment. It was to question it. You know, if you recognize it, you say, oh, it's there. So what do we do with it or how could we do otherwise? So the, this whole process with like um, what was not, you know, going back into childhood to try to fix something but to actually experience new things, experience new sensation, because, you know, it's all linked to perception. You need to perceive things to, for them to enter your psyche. Um, it was doing new activities, you know, uh, um, having corporal or bodily sensation, you know, something that would be tactile or perceptual. So this is the whole difference. Inst instead of going back to the Oedipus and fixing the subject, is to go in the world and connect differently. That would be the key of, you know, the anti-Oedipus prescription, I think. Yeah, and to remove blockages. Yes. Plumber, you know, they call us, they call it mechanics, but you're more of a plumber. I, I use the example, I think, on one of our images of the Robert Nero character from Brazil as kind of what a schizoanalyst really is. Uh, fixes the AC. If you haven't seen yeah. Brazil, you need to. But uh, that's... Oh, totally. Be 
Yeah, totally. I think you're totally right. You know, I gave this example as plumbing because, you know, I have like open plumbing in my basement and I was like, you know, I have to do stuff in the basement and I was looking at it. I was like, this is a really good <laughs> metaphor for the whole thing. But I think this is, you know, this is how we need to think of it. The flux is being the water and there's blockage on the side because, you know, the pipes are organizing the flux. But there would be blockage within um, the pipes that will reorganize the water into a certain way, de-intensify it or re-intensify it in certain ways. But if we remove the blockage or we open a valve, we reconfigure, we displace the intensities. So, you know, there's a whole becoming to this machine of water going through pipes and it's always ongoing. So, you know, if we, if we open ways, we allow becoming to happen yes I, I think that's really well said because it's this is why it's a really important distinction that the unconscious here is passive and that these syntheses are passive it's not like we actually have to try to do these syntheses the unconscious and this is happening around us and we're produced in that process right in the same way the wasp isn't actually the wasp per se it's really a, a, a series of collections of different machines and their interconnections and their breaks with one another. And that that simultaneity allows for the possibility of what we call the wasp. And um, and at any point that the whole point, and this is I, I think logic of sense delves really deep into this, but specifically about the wasp and the orchid and what they are at any given moment. When the wasp is just flying around, it's becoming a wasp. When the wasp lands on the orchid, it's actually becoming orchid. In those moments, it's desiring machines are trying to connect it with what is actually an organ. Whereas the orchid at that point uh, has its desiring machines that are, are seeking out in the world, but they're becoming wasp. And so in that moment, they're actually becoming each other uh, sort of in, in, in those experiences. And the, the desiring machines are the things pushing them towards doing that and towards us doing this. It's the first task of schizoanalysis this entire thing is for us to actually go in and understand what machines are working what that larger system is and destroying the pieces literally destroying the pieces that uh, are doing harm to that passive process because this is why to go back to that original question lou asked is where i see the virtual and where i see the subject uh, this is that it's passive uh, sort of integrations of things, the way that they interact, the way that all of these syntheses fire off and then ultimately connect to uh, the social machines. That's where we are created. That's where I exist. And if we can actually break connections, break, break how those connections are formed and what machines are making them, that's where we can actually improve people's lives. So there, there's two things here. You know, you're talking about <clears throat> connection between the wasp and the orchid and they're becoming one another as they are connecting. But this this is as this has temporal effects as well. So this this becoming orchid of the wasp, uh, it keeps going after the connection. You know, if there's a disjunction there, it there's a still like a becoming other that keeps going because the experience is being recast into the virtual of the bee and it keeps on actualizing so it becomes part of the productive machine of the bee or the wasp um so but that's the same thing with humans you know if you experience something it will be cast back into your memory or your past as a temporal block and it will keep acting on your actual um experiences 
So to actually change this is not to play into the virtual, but to play into the actual, you know, get yourself into the gym, stop drinking, you know, and because you do this, you allow yourself to learn that, you know, an active body is better than a passive one that maybe, you know, not being drunk all the time is better than being drunk all the time. So this, this having new experiences allow you to uh, become other and you know they, they they keep playing in time and because they actually function as um, habit creating because of the repetition that you're doing them they they will feed back into this loop constantly so that that's one way of fixing the subject instead of you know trying to fix the the symbolic of the pipes you just <laughs> you just change the pipes you know yeah, to that point, like to put it in kind of like anti-Oedipus terms, right? Like with the wasp and orchid, right? It's not simply that the wasp itself is becoming orchid. It's not necessarily wrong, but it's it's all these different desiring machines are engaging with this, uh, the, the, the production and the disjunctions, like you're saying. And that subjectivity is consummated by these desiring machines in connection with the body without organs, right? Because they... In Antiedipus, they seem to, they, they, I only recall like one instance of the use of the, of the term, the virtual, which is in the, page 128, 129. And I might be splitting hairs here, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with Roger on that point. I only uh, mean to say that uh, it's not uh, more so than it being uh, reported in, in the virtual. It's more, it's directly reported in, in these body without organs. Oh, I didn't look at the chat. Oh, I'm being called Jordan now. All right, all right. There's the mythos. Yeah, you know the. You said, you said get up and you know clean your room and. Oh, okay, I get it. I get it. But that's the thing, you know. Like if you take Jordan Peterson, that's the thing. He's, he's actually telling you to change your ways into the. Well, I don't agree with that guy. You know, I would fight him. But um, he's he's telling you to change the actual structure of your day by changing the actual structure you will modify your habits and you will become something else, you know? And he's like, you know, he's giving you like a map or to become productive, to become part of the system, you know, to become successful within capitalism. That's basically what he does. But it's, it's you know, fixing people. It's actually doing that too, you know? So it's, a, it's, it's not, it, there's two possible. It, either you open possibilities um to fuck the system or change it or you know produce something new or you fix um the condition of the subject so it can actually atone itself to what is being already there and i mean we cannot create revolutionaries out of everyone this is not what everyone wants so you know it's it's really for when you come from like an anarchist background, it's really difficult to understand the practice of psychiatry and the practice of therapy, because you see the therapist as like mind police, you know, I cannot see them otherwise. So I have this really difficult way of understanding what can be produced by therapy other than, you know, some kind of a prison for the mind or a prison for the, the, the body, but you actually are the plumber of your own prison. To, to a point, yes. Only, only to add on to that, that is to say, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but to add on to that is also the matter of like how things are connected with the social and that. So like there are things you can change in your life, right? 
that yeah you can clean your room and that but um there's also uh right like going to work on that there's ways that the unconscious is happening say in the institution of i don't know where plumbers work i don't even know if they have offices <laughs> they probably home there are people there are millions of them and they're just like us jack i know i'm being i'm being rude to the plumbers let me take a uh, construction is an unconscious that comes with the, the office of the construction workplace. Uh, and there's a way in which all that is, is not only set up, but will be act. Um, I got to be careful. I use the word active here that throughout the day in that connections are made. And, and there's a way in which that we all enter into that with each other and that these different partial objects are entering into that with us. Right. And so I, I suspect too, like, and this is to, I think, affirm Roger's point. Part of like, uh, part of this kind of change comes into play with also changing. It's kind of wherever you go, you have the potentiality for changing these things, both in terms of yourself, perhaps, but also in terms of like groups. Okay, I'm gonna jump in here and uh, push us onto another subject unless anyone has any last thoughts on that one, because I have actual stuff I want to get through, and we've gone an hour now, and I think it's been more general good, but I'd like to push ahead, uh, because I have a hand. I do have one last thing in terms of, like, the discussion of the virtual and that. This is the one paragraph that I recall them using the word virtual, and it actually gets into a paralogism and into the use of Oedipus, so it might be... Go for it. it. It does relate to what we're going to talk about in terms of the first positive task. So page 128 to 129, we maintain that the cause of the disorder, neurosis or psychosis, is always in desiring production, in its relation to social production, in their different or conflicting regimes, and the modes of investment that desiring production performs in the system of social production. The actual factor is desiring production, insofar as it is caught up in this relationship, this conflict, and these modalities. Nor is this factor either ulterior or pervative. Being constitutive of the full life of desire, it is contemporary with the most tender age, and it accomplishes the life with every step. It does not arise after Oedipus. It, is, it in no way presupposes an Oedipal organization, nor a pre-Oedipal pre-organization. On the contrary, it is Oedipus that depends on desiring production, either as a stimulus of one form or another, a simple indicator through which the an, the an Oedipal organization of desiring production is formed, beginning with early childhood, or as an effect of the psychic and social repression imposed on desiring production by social reproduction by means of the uh, family. The term actual is not used because it designates what is most recent and because it would be opposed to former or infantile. It is used in terms of its difference with respect to virtual. And it is the Oedipus complex that is virtual, either in as much as it must be actualized in a neurotic formation as a derived effect of the actual factor, or in as much as it is dismembered and dissolved in a psychotic formation as the direct effect of the same factor. It is indeed in this sense that the idea of the afterwards seemed to us to be a final paralogism in 
psychoanalytic theory and practice. Active desiring production and its very process and thus from the beginning a constellation of somatic, social, and metaphysical relations that do not follow after Oedipal psychological relations, but that on the contrary will be applied. This was kind of Roger's point earlier that will be applied to the underlying Oedipal constellation defined by reaction, or else will exclude this constellation from the field of investment constituting their activity. Undecidable, virtual, reactive, or reactional rationale, such as Oedipus. It is only a reactional formation, a formation that results from a reaction to desiring production. It is a serious mistake to consider this formation in isolation, abstractly, independently of the actual factor that coexists with it and to which it reacts. So at one level, this is part of Roger's point about Oedipus's application, right? It's something that uh, you're applying, but it's also something that in the connections with you and the, the psychotherapist and that and like the social is being applied therein. But more to the point too, like Oedipus, we talk about it as though it exists outside of all these um, socialities, all these different connections. But their point is Oedipus is both has a uh, has been produced by desiring production, but also uh, when applied acts upon desiring production. Oedipus is a reaction to desiring production, and that way, as an application upon desiring production, doesn't simply stymie you or me as anxious, neurotic, or psychotic, but actually works to stymie the unconscious in this more. Uh, shall we say, uh, microphysical sense, that the, the sense of the molecular, the, those things such as anxiety and that that we typically have in the Freudian and uh, Lacanian psychoanalytic discourse. Their point here is, that sim- is simply, um, it's not to say that it simply stymies you or me, that actually affects uh, the desiring production of these desiring machines and how these assemblages are possible. It's a huge critique into psychoanalytic methods of uh, praxis and application and what it does not only to you as a person but to the unconscious in this more um, general sense shall we say all right Uh, i'd like to dive into one of the things within uh, this section we're supposed to be reviewing um the molecular chain um i reread this section last night and I want to read just a little bit uh, and talk about my understanding of the signifying chain uh, as I understood it from kind of where I thought they were coming from, which was Lacan, sort of world of critical, uh, page 328 of the text. Um, it's uh, dead in the middle. Um, but... It is another case altogether with the properly molecular chain, insofar as the BWO is a nonspecific and nonspecified support that marks the molecular limit of the molar aggregates. The chain no longer has any other function than that of deterritorializing the flows and causing them to pass through the signifying wall, thereby undoing codes. Function of the chain is no longer that of coding the flows on the full body of earth, the despot or capital, but on the contrary, that of decoding them on the full body without organs. The chain of escape, no longer a code. Signifying chain has become a chain of decoding and deterritorialization, which must be apprehended, only be apprehended as the reverse of the codes and the territorialities. 
Now, uh, I'll, I'll actually dive in uh, to this directly. Signifying chains, Lacanian uh, concept. Uh, it's a combination of signifiers underneath the massive uh, master signifier that connect in a ton of different ways, generally only understood by the subject perceiving them. Uh, and uh, think of it as, uh, I think I saw a good version of that is uh, links in a necklace. They are intertwined. Now, the necklace itself is a bunch of different chains. I see them as intertwined and interconnected. That is signifying chain. Concept. Now, the properly molecular chain, they talk about basically being, uh, this is where I fall apart. So if, if this is my signifying chain, I have a, all of these different symbols that are interconnected and uh, signifiers that are sort of chained underneath the master signifier. Boom, idea. Deleuze and Guattari toss that out. There is no such thing as a master signifier. Uh, not how it really works. Instead, what we have is we have these molar chains that exist, and their job is blank. That's it. That's all I got, and it's uh, kind of a problem for me. So first, the master signifiers paralogistic. Correct. That's like the Correct. thing we just read about Oedipus, right? The way that that can be, that the way that that is worked upon desire is paralogistic. It's not to say it's um, it's not to negate it. It's to say that it's um, uh, it's paralogistic. It's it's a misuse of the syntheses. It's it's if the syntheses are broken, then out comes the master, or vice versa. Or to subvert them. Right. So then, okay, the chain no longer has any other function than that of deterritorializing the flows and causing them to pass through the signifying wall, undoing the codes. Please describe so, this to me in a way I can understand. Tall order. Page 282. One sec, one sec. Was that, was that, was that? A musky, please, musky. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Uh, it, I feel like I'm having a hard time explaining it, but they're sort of doing that movement from the like these big social structures, the molar desiring, the molar conditions that condition desire, and then they're the when they talk about breaking through the signifying wall and the molecular chain, that's them switching down down to like the individual schizophrenic way of like interacting with desire so i'm not sure where exactly the confusion is so that i could try to help okay uh so the previous the previous paragraph ends with the very notions of code and axiomatic therefore seem to be valid only for molar aggregates where the signifying chain forms a given determinate configuration of support that is itself specifically determined and in terms of a detached signifier uh this is the concept of the paralogism that ends up working at a molar level. Molar investments that suck and fuck us up. Now, different though, with a properly molecular chain on this side, on the, the pre-individual level, the molecular chain, insofar as the body without organs is non-specific and non-specified support that marks the molecular limit of the molar aggregates. They can't get closer than this. They can't be broken down anymore until they become molecular. That chain that molecular chain has no function other than deterritorializing the flows and causing them to pass through the signifying wall, undoing the codes. 
That last part, I don't get. I need an example. I need, I need an example of it. I mean, it still has function. It's just that the, it, the signs just have no signification in the sense that, you know, they're not necessarily linked to the Muller significance. Um, but they are having effects and they, have, they are having functions. Okay. Maybe so, this is a bad example, but like maybe something like uh, a piece of like abstract art, like a Rothko or like a Pollock, where you know that is someone's desire kind of actualized in their painting. But you can't say that like a Rothko signifies any one thing particularly. You know, it's kind of a color or a wash, something like that. Yeah. Or we could take. Uh... It's 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 difficult for me to uh, to like, start from art. So I'm trying to consider your example, but I'm gonna give like a common uh, a layman example. Um, let time. me really quick. Let me try because would an example be a dollar? Uh, like it, it, the discussion at the molar level about dollars and how the economy works and who has what money. But literally, when I'm just holding the dollar and I'm dealing with it myself at a molecular level, it's effectively meaningless. Sure, you could. That's that one. I feel like is a little tough because you you know there's a lot of politics and uh, economics implicated in money. But yeah, you could make the money into anything. You could light the dollar on fire and use it to light a cigar, and that's not really like a signifying thing. It's well, hard to say that but that's, means anything. Yeah, but that's but just 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 the function exchange, the exchange function of the dollar. As you know, I'm buying pot from you. So like I'm giving you, I'm never going to buy pot from you, but uh, <laughs> I'm giving you a dollar for like X amount of pot. It's, it's actually, it's, it's producing reality. It, it inscribes itself into a chain without necessarily being into the whole capitalistic kind of, you know, pattern. Because, you know, one, one gram is amount to X dollars. And, you know, we make this equivalent and it doesn't have to go with the surplus value and stuff like this. You know, it's, it can become an, like a purely exchange form. And I think that um, at, at the, the level of people, uh, these change of exchange create series that are actually because they are reproducing themselves enough, become part of the molar or are reproductions of the molar but you you know you can exchange whatever you can pay for new things that you would have never paid off you know well so i i'm more trying to figure out because so i think i'm able to start getting more specific about what my question is uh we're talking about uh molar and molecular the molar aggregate and the molecular chain the molecular moments and the way desiring machines work at the molecular level Molecular is pre-subject, pre-individual. Uh, and so at that point, we're talking about basically breaking down what things work at, at a material level. Uh, the interconnectedness of these things uh, doesn't really exist at that point. Uh, the dollar, for example, is paper with maybe a certain feel screen. It, I, don't, I don't have a use for that. There is no a larger thing that exists in the molecular chain that would do that. It's completely decoded. However, on the other side of the wall, which becomes the molar invest, the molar aggregates, uh, those flows actually have a use. Those flows are things and stories that I become invested in, the, the, my molar investments. And it, cash and social machines and all of those things um, are examples of that. They're... Uh, they're, they're human machines, the social machines, however you want to put it. 
but money would be that. It becomes useful at a social level. And the stories I tell myself become how the body without organs functions. That's the body without organs. It's the story, the meta that I exist in, but that only exists on the other side of things. The, the question for me is where it says, um, the function of the chain is no longer that of coding the flows on the full body of the earth desperate capital, but on contrary, that of decoding them on the full body without organs. I get the beginning of that because the chain ultimately uh, codes flows on the full body of the earth. I get that switch uh, and that change over time, but on the contrary, it decodes them on the full body. I don't understand what that process is or how that has any relevance or what it is. I don't understand that at all, I guess. As a... um, so I think, it's, I think um, part of what's happening is that the body without organs is kind of a, mo a molecular thing, right? They call it the giant molecule. It's not, it's not, it doesn't exist only on the side of, you know, um, the molar aggregates. It's part of what makes desiring machines. It's, it's, it's the part of the like simultaneous conditions that they talk about for their unconscious to exist. It's the recording and the anti-production that goes into making the network of desiring machines possible. Mm, yeah, that, well, that yeah well that, that's the same thing we were discussing the other day uh the molecular is possible because the molar is there there's always this this relationship that is being because the the molar is the driving point you know it's the the like you said it's the motor and the molecular are attached to the molar in some way but they can actually point to other possibles as the molar doesn't point to possible itself you know it's something that is static it's something that does not move but that produces um conditions for rising possibilities to to jump in here like the reason i bring up 282 is i think once again that's what they're describing is the way that like if you follow social production, right, like there's a way in which it's conditioned by the body of the earth, the despotic body, and the body of capital money. But there's also, a, there's both, a, so this is their point about delirium here. That social production moves from the paranoiac and the schizophrenic, right? So they have like the, the dotted lines are supposed to be like uh, schizophrenic uh, deterritorializings and decodings, yeah. So, like, there's a way in which these uh, these different soci, if I can try and make it plural out of a, a singular neologism, uh, there's a way in which these are conditioning desiring production here. When desiring production moves to the body that organs, which is the tangential limit for uh, social production, right? It has the ability to either move through and be a part of the schizophrenic process of deterritorialization. I would argue too, like uh, decoding here, which is what, um, which is what that uh, passage is talking about, is when the signifying chain is uh, decoded and deterritorialized, or it can bounce back and be repulsed by the body without organs. Right? It can be right back into uh, the body of capital money as Oedipal neuroses as familial entities, the despotic body as paranoia and psychoses as despotic entities, or the body of the earth with perversions as territorial entities. So like what this means is like um, one, this has really important, uh, this is kind of what we were talking about in chat yesterday about like art and that, like 
these things are social production, desiring production are going to be conditioned by the associacies. There's a way in which they have a relationship with them. And as that approaches the body without organs, right, it, it, it's having passed through capital in that sense and the other two. It's, it doesn't exist in negation of them, in lieu of them, any more than Oedipus would. What happens, though, and so this is not a point about co-opting as we usually talk about it, what seems to happen to me is that there's a way in which that attachment with the body without organs here can allow for a pass-through. And this is where they're talking about like the line of escape, where these things are, uh, like they say, it's like taken with them, deterritorialized, and decoded. And that remains with the body without organs. And this is kind of what Roger's getting at with like the, the potentialities and the possibilities of new connections in that. It's a deterritorializing or de- and decoding of desire so as to allow for that, having uh, had that desire already be conditioned. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of the big criticism of Deleuze as a capitalist thinker. And, you know, there's a lot of people who actually said that because capitalism in that way is a decoding or a deterritorializing machine that actually allows for other possibilities to arise. So, you know, it's not being criticized from the get-go as from a Marxist perspective, but it's, it's saying that, you know, it just, it, it creates new possibilities by harnessing potentialities into a different manner. Correct. And this is really important because unlike Marxism, he's not going to negate capitalism. He's going to right. This is an Af- uh, this is affirmative of it. This doesn't make capitalism a positive or like a, a good or benevolent force. It is simply like recognizing it uh, instead of negating it, and like moving toward its antithesis. Vincent Hegel here moving toward its antithesis. Yeah, and uh, on on this point, I think it's the eighteen uh, Brumaire of Napoleon, um, in which. Marx is pointing toward the idea of accelerationism. You know, if we push capitalism to its limits, it's going to break down and it's going to, you know, allow for other possibilities. And this this is why a lot of accelerationists are tapping into Deleuze because he's saying basically the same thing. But the Marxists in general um, didn't take that part of Marx. They were just saying, oh, we need to fight capitalism and, you know, capitalism is bad. And, and they made capitalism into the phallic ma- ma- uh, master signifier. And then they're trying to fix political economy by, you know, um, into the same manner that the, 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 the psychoanalysis would do. But to take account that capitalism is productive of alternatives um, creates like a different kind of understanding of political economy. Precisely, because that means like, and this is controversial, like you're saying, but that means something like co-opting in the sense of like, I used punk rock yesterday, like that happens with capital, under capital, and in relation to capital. But that doesn't make it like, uh, that doesn't in and of itself make it good or bad. The, the, the place for judgment here is how that interacts with the body without organs and whether it gets repulsed back onto capital, the, uh, the despotic or the body with, uh, or the body of the earth, which I think it tends to be something like the body of the earth or if it breaks through, because the thing about capital is it's decoding and deterritorializing. But with the other hand, it's 
using overcoding, right? Like there's, this is like uh, what makes it so challenging. Capital's got some, it's not like we're dealing with coding or overcoding. We're dealing with the simultaneity of overcoding and decoding, right? We've got the state and cap, uh, the use of the earth stat and capital and the simultaneity. So this is, are we, we're getting at here the, the way that these molar aggregates condition desire, right? Which plays into the original question because they're talking precisely about the kind of desire that breaks out of that conditioning. Socioses or soci, but yes, because like even in Roger's pot example, right? Like money there is, is a socius if we're talking about capitalism, which I think technically we are there. Like there's a conditionality there of uh, social production. Yeah. Okay. And that's that, and 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 that's one way of using money. But another way of using money might be to burn it or to fold it into a hat or to eat it if you're desperate. Yeah, but it's not money. This is pure material as paper. Right. <laughs> well, and that's, yeah, and that's and that's the that's if we want to talk about distinction matters. Go ahead, Brooks. Yeah, that's that's if we want to talk about again the entire conception of this book is to bring a materialist perspective to psychoanalysis. And so, again, I think it's a way that they've done that very deftly. Uh, and all of this comes back to that same thing, where once we're at the molecular level and we're breaking things down, removing molar investments, removing the molar aggregate, just having that discussion with an Alice, an Alice and or with a subject or with Roger or with Brooks about how they think about a thing or what they're working, working them through and talking through until you're at the point where you're dealing more with the molecular than the molar is when you're able to start actually understanding how things work at a material level. And that's, I think, the sort of big underlying push uh, that they've, they've done here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you want a concrete example of this, we can have the city or disability as ideas or sets of representation, but that's quite different from like and joining with people with disabilities and actually see how they exist in the city and how they connect to, you know, the mobility infrastructure. This is a complete different way of doing social research. But also, this, that would be the same thing in psychoanalysis or, you know, anything that is linked to the psychology or psychiatry instead of, you know, playing into the symbolic, into the representation of it is to follow people during their day and, you know, say, oh, yeah, so you're doing this as a pattern. Why don't we try something else? And it's something of a, I was doing with people with disabilities and it's it's really disruptive. You know, we're creating new possibilities, new possibilities arise. And, and that's a way of, you know, making, um, transforming the corrective aspect of social of, or psychological intervention into, you know, you're being a door opener. You open doors. You just open a door and you say, okay, let's, let's try this one. And because it gives a different experience of, of in reality, it actually transforms, you know, the, the series of the molecular connections. Yeah, I, I think you're definitely on to it with that because like with, so like the reason I'm saying like, it's not like co-opting in that too, is like it, it's getting into codification and territorialization, right? There's a way in which like what you're, what you're talking about in your, your disability studies, you're not just changing uh, people per se, like you're, you're changing the territorialities that, um, or the territory 
for the desiring machines and the way that that's going to interact with the body without organs, right? You're yeah, changing but, the uh, the codifications there. But but it's not me that is changing it. You know, it's me coupled with somebody, and they are opening their own doors. You know, I'm just suggesting into that thing. I don't have any credit to take of like changing the territoriality, but in the manner that the person will say, "Oh, there's alternatives. I can do something else." So the strategy into the territory changes, and because the, the strategy changes, the cartography of the habit or the form of dwelling that the person has changes so the territory changes so you're producing alternative worlds and that's really like the, the the kind of language that i use it's you know we're into different ontologies with the s but we need to open those ontologies it, but they're not something that we plan in advance it's something that we do as we go so this is a different understanding of mobility different understanding of dwelling but i think that there's a lot of I would not have written my own dissertation if I didn't think that there was a potential there to be tapped into. But I, I tried to follow uh, the suggestion of Deleuze and Guattari as much as I could, well, you know, into like that kind of social project. But this I, is this is this is the projection. You know? I, I would I would say that it's a really good way to go about talking about what they're talking about when they say sort of the machinic unconscious, how it operates desiring machines versus the molar aggregates and how a schizo analyst should operate. I would go uh, even a step further, and it's it's a lot more abstract and difficult, but uh, I'm, I'm sure you, you have something in your mind, something you can talk about in the realm of there are buildings that people naturally don't feel comfortable going inside, which sounds stupid when I say it out loud. They're buildings, you're supposed to go into them. That is what they are for. But the design of some of them, how the doors are set up, how the, the 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 crown molding is done. Is the door heavy and swings outward rather than slides in? Uh, all of these little mm -hmm. things are, they're not things that a person even necessarily recognizes. Uh, uh, disabled people, I would say, uh, even more so because they're taught they don't belong in a number of different spaces. So you you take these things and you integrate them and what happens is you have these, these broken moments of your desiring machines as you're taking in a million uh, bits of stimulus. And in those moments, again, to go back to where the subject is created, right before a thing becomes molar, when you realize, oh, that, I'm not supposed to go in that building. Now, why? But I could give you 30 million reasons. But suddenly that person isn't trying to. And then what happens, and it's one of those really fascinating things, you, these, these desire pathways, it's a, what we're talking about with this is the same problem that you know, people are talking about when they talk about e-commerce sites and people leaving stuff in their bag, or how, how do you deal with the intentionality and people changing their minds or uh, affecting them? How do you know how to guide someone to where they want to be? Uh, seduction design, all of these things are a sort of ways of playing with a person's desiring machines and we don't know that they exist so the, the first tool of schizoanalysis the first thing is the positive and negative task the positive task is my job is to sort of go in and have a conversation with you and say hey what are your desiring machines doing let's talk about building new ones and resituating them reconnecting them now at the same time we need to have a conversation about your molar aggregate sort of investments and my job is effectively to destroy those. I'm helping build the molecular and destroy the molar. 
and that's yeah, the... to- totally man it's like uh it's it's a uh, you 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 understand my dissertation before even reading it you know it's like it's it's a really weird thing but like it's really basic at the same time there's nothing complicated there and when you're saying you know there's a uh, buildings are not inviting us they're not inviting us for different reasons for example accessibility that could be physical accessibility for people or information accessibility you know people cannot read the information but I treat them in terms of affordances, you know, how does the infrastructure is giving you possibilities of usage or not. So it suggests you a type of usage. So, you know, who will go to the town hall, you know, who goes there? Not a lot of people, especially not people with disabilities during their day, but they're making those places accessible. They are accessible, but not inviting. So, and and, and it becomes like a real problem for the cities and, you know, the, the public servants, because they're like, we make stuff accessible and people don't come. That's because they don't want to go there. You know, this is not inviting. What they want to do is to, you know, go to the park, have leisures, go be able to go buy pot at the third story of their pot dealer. They want to go to strippers or like whatever well, else. But this is the real stuff that people want to do. But the real stuff that is inviting to them is not accessible. So it becomes like a real uh, difficulty within cities because the cities, as molar aggregates, uh, are trying to plan in advance the accessibility, but they're planning in their own terms in their own molar terms. So they make the political or the public sphere accessible. They are trying to make um, uh, shopping centers accessible. The, the big thing that integrate the mass population. But the little things are not really accessible. And I'm talking about archipels of uh, accessibility in the city. You want to go, you, you start from your house, you live in the middle of a, uh, of a, a, a neighborhood, and you want to go uh, to the shopping mall, for example, because that's a place that is accessible for you. And it gives you different affordance, but also different possibilities of becoming, you know, because this is where you want to, you can go and make social contacts with people, but you cannot move from your place to the main street where you're going to take the bus because the sidewalks are not accessible. So, you know, everything become hostile. Well, this is, and now you're talking about the, the greatest problem in transport, which is the last mile problem. Yes. Which is the fact that it's, you could have the world's greatest public transportation in the world. Uh, most people won't use it if it doesn't get them the last mile to their house or to their work. And that defeats the entire purpose of having public transport once you get to that point. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. But it's, you know, I'm giving this into disability, into mobility as a concrete example. Oh, it's, it's, it's a great example. I just, it's, it's also, I think, um, it's one of those things that you could just go absolutely insane and in trying to find all of the little details. The, the overarching concept is absolutely the right, like, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with it. I, I, I'm just saying, like, there's, there's so far you can go into it. And so we start having to have the conversations. And this is that polar problem. Uh, at what point is accessibility too much? As a, at what point are these things problems that are, are beginning to actually cause a drain on themselves? I, I linked uh, Matthias Warch, brilliant game designer, uh, who I'm fortunate to call a friend, uh, has done a level design seminars at GDC every year, probably one of the best thinkers when it comes to how to design worlds for people. Uh, if you want to talk about worlds, Roger, you would actually love most of his talks. He doesn't deal with reality almost at all. 
but uh, it's about how you get people in video games to believe they're in a real world, how you get people in video games to move around certain ways and how to get them to open doors, how to get them to see stuff and how their culture affects that and how, how they were raised affects that. And the, the larger stories behind everything is really fascinating, completely worth uh, checking out. Yeah, totally. I'll do that. But to go back to this this point, you know, I'm I'm saying I'm giving this example because you know this this is what I do. But we could go into sexuality, how the molar aggregates in sexuality, you know, uh, don't create a world with affordances with people for people with different desires. So you know that's a thing. That's a real thing. But the molar aggregates create a city, creates a social space into a certain way, so that different desires or different sexual organ, uh, orientation or sexual expression cannot really express themselves because they don't have the affordances to do so. Yeah, and that's part of the territoriality and the coding. Yes, and then you know you do like a gay village or like queer spaces, and you open new territories, and because you open new territories, desire will be organized into a different manner, and this organization feedbacks into the loop of the virtual, giving a way to more and more transformations, and then you know if it becomes prevalent enough or hegemonic enough, it can change the molar aggregate. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so to like to bring this back into like uh, I think it's four four, and, and to go back to like Brutz's original like uh, question of departure. So this this passage seems really relevant here in terms of like everything we're discussing, Pratsus, and even giving like an answer to your question. So two three twenty eight, it would seem that the genetic code points to a genetic decoding. One need only grasp the decoding and deterritorializing functions in their own positivity, and as much as they imply a particular chain state that is metastable and distinct, both from any axiomatic and from any code, the molecular chain is the form in which the genic unconscious always remains subject and reproduces itself. And as we have seen, that is the primary inspiration of psychoanalysis. It does not add a code to all of these that are already known. The signifying chain of the unconscious, Newman, is not used to discover or decipher codes of desire, but to cause absolutely decoded flows of desire, libido, to circulate, and to discover in desire that which scrambles other codes and undoes all the territorialities. It is true that Oedipus will restore psychoanalysis to the status of a simple code, with the familial territoriality and the signifier of castration. Worse yet, it will happen that psychoanalysis itself wants to act as an axiomatic, which is the famous turning point where it no longer even relates to the familial scene, but solely to the psychoanalytic scene that supposedly answers for its own truth, and to the psychoanalytic operation that supposedly answers for its own success. The couch is an axiomatized earth. The axiomatic, cure, uh, uh, the axiomatic of the so-called cure is the successful castration. But by recording or axiomatizing the flows of desire in this way, psychoanalysis makes a molar use of the signifying chain that results in a misappreciation of all the syntheses of the unconscious. So if we simply apply this to like Roger's examples of like what he's trying to encourage, right? Like this is pretty much it, right? Decoded and deterritorialized flows uh, allow for libido to um, to. Connect, uh, to have connectability, 
to have new potentialities of connection. So do we still have people with us? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I put the question in the chat, but uh, is it being said that Newman provides the possibility for new connections or the opportunity? Is that what's meant by scrambling and whatnot? Yeah, so um, with Newman there, I think they're saying like, with the decodification, there's a way in which that, so like they're, that's directly related to Newman, which is going to trans, um, which is libidinal energy transformed into the second synthesis, right? And that's going to transform into the third synthesis, yeah. It's like with the simultaneity of this, like with the code scrambled. Just, just with, not to stop, uh, Newman is the energy of recording, correct? The second synthesis? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly, and then that's exactly the point, right? Like, if if so, if you've got a double bind, right, and you scramble the double bind, right, so you you undo the paralogism, so to speak, that affects the territoriality, and that allows for a libidinal energy to um to to basically have connectability. So like the the exclusions and like the where they talk about the body without organs uh, falling back on production. So if like the body without organs in relation to Newman, if that relationship changes, if, the, if there's a decoding, that falls back on production and that affects how uh, libidinal energy can connect and distribute and how this um, process of desiring production uh, flows thereby. Um, I, Roger, I have a question I think is going to be a French question. Um, because if we're talking about the second synthesis, I've wondered about this. I read a while back a, a guy who obviously spoke French far better than me said uh, they use a play on words with the act of recording. They call it miraculant to indicate miraculous creation. And then the cule in miraculant is part of the pun, of course. I don't know what that means, and I've always wanted to ask you. Uh, cule? Yeah. Cule is S. So it's like spewing for the s, spewing from the s. Okay, so it is. It isn't. Miraculant is intended to be a pun. I don't know about this, but in the way you put it, that could be a possibility. Remember reading. So, so okay. Uh, really quick, three syntheses. Uh, first is libidinal energy, that sort of uh, birthing of things. The, um the connective production. At that point, uh, recording happens, uh, that's Newman, and then enjoyment happens following that, and that's uh, a voluptus. The enjoyment, the, right? Yeah, and with that, the body with the organs falls back on production, right? So it, the recording and the, the miraculating and the surface and the, the territoriality, right, that all comes back to bear on production itself. And because the BWO falls back on it's, it appears, uh, classically appears to be the productive surface, but it's not. It's it's the surface of recording, obviously. Um, but the act of recording makes it appear productive. Cash, as an example, of a surplus value, those things, uh, the way things are, the that feels like it's productive, but it's not. The productive starts first in the first synthesis out of production. This is going to be one of the hardest. The three syntheses, I think, are probably my most difficult. Mm -hmm. Can I uh, um, always offer something? 
just one sec. Bo is saying something into the chat. The recording is that just describing the process of Abbott production. If we put it in Bergsonian terms, yes. And yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, uh, the moment you've defined something as a habit, yes, I would say that's the recording. I kind of like the way Roger said it a few weeks ago, um, though, in the sense of like uh, function production or like uh, what things will do. Like they did give, they give the example of the gum. I can't think of the character, but the character who walks and then stops and the different ways in which these functions are changing because of the inclusive synthesis or the, uh, the syllogistic use of Newman. I was just going to offer, since I keep constantly referring to Simone Den, um, there's a section in the PDF that I linked that's the famous introduction to his genesis of the individual, which I actually I haven't read. I've repeatedly reread this essay, the introduction, but especially since they invoke the idea of metastable in, in the exact section that uh, Jack quoted, um, I'm, it might be helpful. Like I, We've gone in a million directions with this, but what I'm seeing in this, like even when we bring up examples of cash and these other things, like I, they do get to that, but that that is also kind of on a much bigger scale. And I wonder if it would help if we're thinking about the molecular to like drill in a little bit. And to me, but when when they invoke something like the metastable, a metastable system, that is like a direct line to Simondin. And one of the useful things I was just thinking about Simondin's uh, discussion of the idea of of crystals and how crystals grow. Um, I think I put the the quote of that in the chat, but one of the one of the ways that he describes it is like it, it's a way of envisioning how uh, individuation can happen in a way that is non-purposive and kind of bypassing all these problems that we see in psychoanalysis. So there's actually there's a there's a section on just short thing I want to read, and then uh, there's two different things I wanted to read. Um, the first is they talk about Simonin talks about an idea of transduction. So he says, uh, a fresh notion enjoying a great variety of aspects and many areas of application can be drawn from this method, which treats the principle of identity in the excluded middle as being too narrow transduction. This term denotes a process, be it physical, biological, mental, or social, in which an activity gradually sets itself in motion, propagating within a given area through a structuration of the different zones of the area over which it operates. Each region of the structure that is constituted in this way then serves to constitute the next one, to such an extent that at the very time the structuration is effective, there is affected, there is a progressive modification taking place in tandem with it. The simplest image of the transductive process is furnished if one thinks of a crystal, beginning as a tiny seed which grows and extends itself in all directions in its mother water. Each layer of molecules that has already been constituted serves as the structuring basis for the layer that is being formed next, and the result is an amplifying reticular structure. The transductive process is thus an individuation in progress. Physically, it might be said to occur at its simplest in the form of a progressive iteration. However, in the case of more complex domains, such as those of living metastability or psychic problematics, it might progress at a constantly variable rate and expand in a heterogeneous area. Transduction occurs when there is activity, both structural and functional, which begins at a center of the being and extends itself in various directions from the center as if multiple dimensions of the being were expanding around this central point. It is the correlative appearance of dimensions and structures in a being in a state of pre-individual tension, which is to say in a being that is more than a unity and more than an identity, and which has not yet passed out of step with itself into other multiple dimensions. Uh, I can paste the section of this quote that's page 312 of 313 in the Simondon text, but I think it's it evokes so much of what uh, what they're, they're getting at, like the idea of metastable systems, like the molecular chains that are non-signifying. 
Simonin has this thing where he talks about being preserving itself, conserving itself through becoming, and it is it is a process of um, not trying to resolve tensions into a stable equilibrium, but to continually you know push that equilibrium into an into a new state of becoming so that it can continue to exist. I see all of that in this section of what they're talking about, uh, and it's a much more I mean crystals is a great example. It's like a much more drilled down kind of elemental way of thinking about it than the big kind of examples that we've been using. So I just I wanted to offer that as a potential you know. I think that's totally. I think that's totally great, and uh, I did. I did apply uh, the idea of the metastable to my my own research. You know, I'm, I'm, if you don't want to hear about my research, it's fine. But I think it it brings you back to people. You know, because people with disabilities are people, as we and they're not different from us. So it's just a way of getting into the human experience for me. Um, but this 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 idea of metastability is. Instead of thinking of identity or essence in the subject, we see the es- we see the subject as it presents itself to us, you know. And so the subject is metastable, but also the city uh, and you know all the components of the city are metastable. So in in temporality, you have the possibility of doing uh, a synchronic analysis or a diachronic analysis. Synchronic is like a snapshot; it's like you take a picture and you describe what's in the picture. But the diachronic um, aspect of it is to take different pictures or take video into uh, a timeline and analyze the changes. So, you know, the best way would be to follow. They did something with the kid. They followed the kid all through his life and um, they filmed everything. So, you know, you can you can see that it's the same individual, but always uh, into a process of becoming. So there's no essential being. There's always essential becoming. And the being is the synchronic moment of the diachronic becoming. So, and, and you know, it's, it, it's just not theoretical stuff. It's something that you can actually observe in reality. And that's what's really interesting with Deleuze and Simondon, even though it's, it's, it seems, you know, uh, theoretical and out of this world, it's really into this world. And it, it's great tools to do social analysis. So, you know, uh, Alyosha, I think you're totally right into focusing on this part because I I did the same thing and it, it, it produces new ways of understanding reality. Um, before we do uh, close out for the day, I want to go over the last big question I had uh, with this section. That is their implementation of the death drive uh, and the death drive and how death uh, essentially is part of the process of desiring machines, that there isn't a secondary drive. Um, well, does anyone have thoughts on that? Jack, I'm sure you do. I know we talked about it a little bit. <laughs> to open this up, um, I've done this to you before, Ken, so I don't feel bad doing it again now. Could you... Could you start this discussion with some remarks about the death drive and psychoanalysis? Just so we have like a, a starting point here of like, because I think one of the keys to understand this is the juxtaposition that they're making. Yeah, I can try. Um, you know, and I guess take my words with a grain of salt because I'm not anywhere near a psychoanalysis expert or anything. But um, as I understand it, uh so the freudian death drive 
uh, is going to be slightly different from the Lacanian Death Drive, and both of those are very much different than what like Jung and Spielerein do with it. Um, so for Freud, it's almost like um, the attempt to master one's own death, in a sense. And it in in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he talks about the mastery of excitations that uh, that break through this protective, or that come into a hole in the protective shield. Uh, um, that makes it complicated. Anyways, it's pretty much for Freud to master one's own death, and it it plays out strangely. Um, but for Lacan. Um, and, and Freud juxtaposes that with Eros being a life drive. For Lacan, there is no difference. Um, all drives act as death drives in the sense that all drives have this insistence to repeat, and it's a specific insistence to repeat. It's the insistence. It's the insistent to repeat in the symbolic order, um, and so you can sort of see. The death drive on a on a uh, personal level, on an uh, on an interpersonal or transubjective level, and then you can see it like on a historical level. So, for on the personal level, it would be like um, like experiencing a uh, a trauma or the original trauma, uh, the primordial. The primordially, primordially repressed, um, and then there's an insistence to like recapitulate that event. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean to recapitulate the trauma or whatever in one's acts throughout one's life. Um, but in the end, he sort of says it all circles around the anxiety of the thing which um, is the primordially uh, repressed. Um, and, and so uh, and uh, on a more historical dimension for Lacan in this insistence to repeat in the symbolic, you can see it in, uh, in nostalgia. So I posted that, that member berries thing from, from South Park, and it's just like that. There, the it, it works like that. So now we see recapitulated this whole um, slogan of uh, "Make America Great Again." That's another example of this death drive. Um, and then for uh, Young and Spielerein, it's closer to uh, the destruction that's necessary for becoming. Um, that the 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 death drive doesn't circle around one thing um but uh that it circles around you know maybe many different things and its attempt is to create something new through uh through uh channeling intensities okay so if we walk then into anti-oedipus my my impression here is that what they're saying is like when Freud is going to make this move for the death drive, uh, which I think is like Thanos or something like that. Is it Thanos or Thanatos? Thanatos. Okay, I was going to say, I don't want to marvelize it. Thank you. <laughs> so you get, right, Thanatos, and then that's opposed to Eros, which like the losing Guadri point out, 
is a way of Freud getting away from libido, right? So like you've got two different drives that are pushing, um, if I understand correctly, are basically related to how the id and the ego are going to react and how that's going to play out um, psychologically. So I, I think when I think of the death drive, like the self-mastery over death seems to be something of like self-destructive behavior in the sense of you playing out how you would like, basically how you would end things. Yeah. Like, uh, and I think this is kind of what they're getting at is like, that would appear for Freud to not only be um, non-libidinal, but it, it also seems to be a way of like quashing desire itself. But through desire is what kind of what they're getting at, right? Like it's, there's sort of a, a slight a, a trick of the light here. Whereas like Eros is like, since it's opposed and there's almost like a dialectical process here, uh, that would seem to take us away from a libido and just take us in terms of like, like a self-destructive and maybe like more like life affirmative if we want to polarize the two. And in that, like Deleuze and Guadri's move seems to be, seems to share that affinity with Lacan is to say, no, no, it's, it, it, desiring production doesn't have this polarity where it, it's like, uh, it's got this dualism of death and, and life. And it's this, um, it's, uh, it's, it's not split into two and it doesn't have this like um, bifurcation more so. It's not like a river that flows in the two different deltas altogether. And therefore, there was never was a river, but yet we have to have the river, right? Like this is kind of their point: is that it's um, there's a uh, there's a conflation happening despite the separation. Yeah, I remember asking about this yesterday, and and I think I think the distinction that I walked away from the conversation yesterday was that like the death drive in Floyd is this sort of uh, I guess antithesis of the. Eros, the the libidinal thing, and for Deleuze and Guattari, they're not really opposites. It's just they, they would talk about it like production and anti-production more, right? Yeah, because like even in like, so if we walk it out like to that point, like with the death drive, how is libido absent? Like how is there, how is desiring production not happening there? Right, that's kind of the, their their point is that there's like this mistake happening in this in this this weird separation that somehow like like the whole thing isn't exactly going to work here. So like to your point, yeah, it's more about production and anti-production and their interplay. And in that sense, that's going to take us out of the, out of Thanatos and toward the body without organs. And then, and then I think the other thing they do is they talk about the way that the death drive is mobilized specifically in terms of like capitalism. And that's when we started getting into, examples of like you know making weapons for war or like you know just deciding people were going to die if they couldn't do something like something uh i was going to say productive but i should have said valuable like if you can't get a job that makes enough wages to survive you're just gonna die and they make points about that being a very um cruel and kind of maybe like incorrect way of Mm. of ordering society well they go they go really hard very quickly into i think deeply affirming uh lacan's sort of underlying view that the death drive is about nostalgia to 
Ken's point, and I started really diving into it. The uh, con very much uh, does basically say that is the case. It, nostalgia is is death drive sort of in practice. Um, they actually end this section with very much the same thing. The line. Uh, there where codes are undone, the death instinct lays hold of a repressive apparatus and begins to direct the circulation of the libido, a mortuary axiomatic. One might then believe in liberated desires, but ones that, like cadavers, feed on images. Death is not desired. What is desired is dead, already dead, images. Uh, everything labors in death, everything wishes for death. In truth, capitalism has nothing to co-opt, or rather, its powers of co-option will exist more often and not with what is to be co-opted and even anticipated. Uh, it, it's a hell of a hell of a thing to say, and it's a great sentence. Yeah, and in that, right, like you have desiring production as being stymied in and of itself, right? It's so like, how are you, how are connections supposed to happen with these, uh, with images, right? Like, uh, in that sense, like, you, you know, you're, you're connecting with something that's, um, you know, it has nothing to really offer, right? And in that way, like desiring production, it, it has, it, it's still affirmative, like you're saying, you know, although we don't really have the anxiety or like the neuroticism um, that would typically be ascribed here. But like the the, the whole, like um, the, like a vitalism here is, is sort of like off the table, right? Like it's, it's, it's desiring something that's not absent, but that, is present and effectively over and done with. And in that way, desire is desiring to be over and done with. So, so I'm seeing the affinity with Lacan in the sense of Lacan doesn't seem to hold up a dualism like Freud does between Eros and Thanatos. And I'm also seeing a like serious criticism where they're saying that like these dead images sort of proliferate the death drive and into desire and like everywhere it can possibly look if you know you're only interacting psychologically with an imaginary plane and that's the affirmative stuff that jack was talking about that that schizoanalysis wants to move towards the affirmative and the material and be like unleash these living desires that can threaten this entire regime of images and examples of that would be like the poet the art of arto or uh the protests or revolution. The paragraph on 330, I think, is really helpful here. For instance, they write, every intensity controls within its own life the experience of death and envelops it. And it is doubtless the case that every intensity is extinguished at the end, that every becoming itself becomes a becoming death. Death then does actually happen. Maurice Blanchot distinguishes the twofold nature clearly these two irreducible aspects of death. Uh, but I'll stop there. Like, with this point about, de- like, where, where they're getting at here is, like, uh, it helps me to think about, like, uh, syllogism versus, like, uh, paralogism or, like, you know, like, in this sense, like, um, so if we use the, the member barriers, right, like, what happens with those desires, right? Like, the people in South Park are, are there's still desiring production happening, but you know, there's a sense in which they're what the desiring machines and all that, like at the smaller level are trying to be connected or rather the social machines are trying to be connected with something that's really not, uh, they're still connecting, but it's not really, 
it's not really living, is it, right? Like, um, or with like Make America Great Again, like none of us were actually there. Well, like many of us were not there for like the whole Reagan thing. And what really matters isn't what actually happened with the Reagan thing. What really matters is like the, the things that are ascribed to the Reagan era, the images there. And that's what people are, are trying to connect with, right? Is those images, those um, those like um, representations of that era. And in that way, like the desiring production that's happening has this weird sort of double vision with those images, right? Like there's a way in which it's desiring production and social production are still occurring, but there's this weird like um, sort of like repressing representation that's uh, inserted here. Yeah, I really like what you said about double vision and repressing representation, because I think that's part of what's confusing about this section for me is the the, the idea of that double vision where they're looking at, uh, okay, so take, for example, the situation you brought up with Trump, where I think you're dead on that a lot of people like the slogan to make America great again. Uh, A lot of that is expressing a desire for that Reagan era of politics but a lot of people you know like i wasn't around for it either right like it, it it's not like it, it's really weird to imagine a psycho an analyst looking at those people's desires for reagan and being like well that must be you know the really important thing that must be what we we should look at as psychoanalysts and i think that the criticism is that losing water like well no there's other stuff happening here they're making things and we should look at what they're making but that that's the part of the imaginary you know in the sense that um being believing into the america great again thing is to go back and idealize certain memories or you know past representation as temporal blocks and saying it was so much easier back then it was so much better back then. So if we will go back into, you know, a reactionary way, we could actually make this greatness happen again. But, you know, it's completely factist representation because it was shit in the fucking 80s. But, you know, or in the 50s or the 60s, you know, women were like stuck into the domestic sphere and all that stuff. Uh, gay people were oppressed. You know, there was like, that was before the civil rights movements. Uh, but the thing is that, it taps into some weird, you know, backward and uh, idealized uh, temporality. But at the same moment, believing in this representation and putting it into action produces stuff right now, produces the alt-right, produces the Proud Boys, produces all the racists out there coming out saying, yeah, I, I hate this group, I hate this other group. But it also creates QAnon because this skewed memories actually produces a skewed present. It produces an alternative present that is being tapped into this greatness being reenacted. So it's a really weird thing. And I think that it's a full... It's a full paranoiac, and it's a full it's it's schizophrenic in the real sense. In the same, and there's alternative realities that are being created right now. So that's it's interesting to see it in a psychoanalytic way. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Yeah, uh, with like the Reagan thing, like the the whole the whole interest is like the image of Reagan, right? Like the images of 
people in those 80s suits that were that were too big to fit the person because that was the style the image of like uh, the domesticated housewife right those images and that connection is what's being like is happening right like that but at the same time like you're saying there's a way in which the production of that and what's actually imminently being produced like i'm calling it a double vision because i don't think it exactly lines up because like it's not actually an engagement with the past it's very much the present engaging with the present and that's that is kind of the, the interest of it right is that all this production is still happening imminently now even though these images um you know have ended or dead there's still this connection that's producing in the immediate well and, and maybe an interesting way like uh i i had the idea of furthering your metaphor about the double vision right where i think the losing guattari's criticism of lacan is like it's easy to imagine a psychoanalysis kind of a psychoanalyst kind of closing one eye and looking at an alt writer and being like okay all of these images, the secret to like your trauma, the way of addressing your situation is to look at all these images that you, you know, valorize or long for or whatever. And, and I can, I can piece them together regarding your childhood trauma and Oedipus. And I can, I can make sense of this and I can help you become a more well-adjusted person. So you're not posting on QAnon boards or something right now. And you can, you know, function at your workplace without screaming about uh, Pizzagate. Uh, exactly. Whereas, yeah, and Delisa Guattari, like, no, 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 that's the wrong, that's the wrong reaction. <laughs> but before you go on, I would just say something. This is the diagnosis of the incel. When we say that they are incels, it's because we're putting this into the repression of sexual desire. And that's the work of the psychoanalysis. So please let go about the alternative with Delisa. No, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if I even had anything like even better to add on that it's just like I, I, that's what the criticism they're getting at that i think we had some question about is is that it's easy to imagine that psychoanalysts looking at the incel and being like oh i can just figure out you know why you're aggressive towards women or why you form this weird misogynist community on the internet it doesn't have anything to do with the material conditions of society or the things you're you know actively engaged in producing Instead, it has to do with this childhood trauma or this, you know, uh, relationship. Well, it's, it's of... Specifically, it's it's going to be a psychoanalysis who te who gets the analyst hand to tell him what the problem comes from. But the line that they use that I really like is um, illegitimate and transcendent uses of the syntheses, according to which the unconscious can no longer operate in accordance with its own machines. But it merely this is the quote, represents what a repressive apparatus gives it to represent. Repression shows what, it, you can't have an image that doesn't include repression if it's got repression in it. And so by nature, you're sort of, uh, sort of uh, diagnosing the sickness by one thing that the sickness produces and then assuming you've got it rather than really taking a look at holistically everything that's happening to the person. Exactly. So it's always a, a matter of multiplicities and not of unique factors. So, you know, if, if you're trying to do a cause effect with like one factor, you're wrong. You're just wrong. So like social sciences that does this is just wrong. Psychoanalysis or psychology that does this is wrong either. You need to see the whole ecology. Now, you know, it, it's a machine of production into the multiplicity of couplings. Well, and that's their their larger critique and their larger sort of damnation, I think, and frustration that comes through here is when they're talking, they're like, and we happen to live in a time 
lo and behold, just like Oedipus produces Oedipal images, we live in a time where everything is about image production. That's the system we live in. We're beyond investing in capital. We now create images. And everything is images. Repression will create repressive images. The unconscious doesn't know what it's doing. It's just producing. And it's that underlying thought about the time we live in that I think is really interesting. I was going to say, this is sort of, this reminds me of, uh, if anyone's ever read Talal Assad, he has a great book called uh, On Suicide Bombing. And he analyzes kind of like the discourse around like professional counterterrorism and trying to reconstruct like the motivations of the suicide bomber and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's a great little, it's only like 90 pages, but it's such a, it's a wonderful text because not even from a Deleuzian angle, just from his like, sort of, he's more of Foucauldian, but uh, he's just deconstructing like how this whole discourse of official counterterrorism studies kind of self-justifies itself. And it's unable to ask like the elephant in the room question of like, could we have caused these situations ourselves with like foreign policy and the way we've treated these countries and, you know, funded these groups. It's, it's none of that. The only thing that it can ever see is why, like, it's that old kind of question. Why do they hate us? You know, like, why do they hate us? So why do they hate our freedom? How could they be so evil to do this thing? And obviously, you know, we're talking about horrific acts and all that, but it's like, it's this, uh, he goes into the morality of like the idea of the moral generals versus the, the barbarians who have no, uh, discrimination in their violence and stuff. And I think, yeah, wherever we see this stuff crop up, it's always like a, you know, it's like that old Foucault thing is like, when you say something is a science, I ask you, how did it come to be a science? What authorized you to say it's a science? Like, that's the question we should always be asking whenever these official discourses are like, oh, yeah, you know, see, the reason this happened is because they they dislike British values, or they dislike American values. You're like, okay, but that that's so decontextualized from everything that's happening <laughs> like we could be doing this for 200 years until uh you know like i always bring up the troubles in, in the northern ireland like it you know they, they didn't end the troubles because they psychoanalyzed the the northern uh the irish and the, the rest of the republic of ireland and decided how to best bring about peace it was a political solution you know so yeah it's just it's what always makes me think about and I, I think one thing deleuze guadri and foucault would agree on is we never actually listen to what that uh, that bomber has to say, right? Like we always deal with representations of it um, at some level, which is how we get this whole like, oh yeah, well they just hate freedom, right? They they hate freedom so much they want to be free from our freedom. But like you know, it's, it becomes very tautological. It's that old uh, David Cross did a bit right after nine eleven where he said, I think uh, I think uh, Bin Laden uh, did what he did because of our support for Israel and our bases on the Middle East. Do you know why I believe that? Because that's what he said. <laughs> yeah, I think that's another interesting thing. It's like the hermeneutics of suspicion taken to its absolute crudest and like most childish level of like, they can literally think of everything except what is being stated, like, and all of the, uh, you know, you could say they have alternative motives and they're manipulative and obviously like, you know, despicable killing innocent people. It's all like that, but just they're in these, these, experts are unable to look at a statement like we committed this act because of the occupation of palestine and because of this this and this in afghanistan they're like no 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 it has to be something else like there has well, to be something well if, if you want a line that i think is spot on it's it's right before what i read before it's the um you can never read the repressed through and in the repression since the latter is constantly inducing a false image of the thing it represses it's uh mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's spot on. That's beyond spot on when you're dealing with Trumpers who 
actively are having conversations that Biden and Obama have been arrested by the FBI and are in, are in custody right now. This is a thing. This is a thing. I'm not making up right now. This is like full LARPing, isn't it? Like we've really reached that point. Yeah, but the, the thing is they're, they're re- we're now reading them through their repression. Like this is the image they've got, the repression they've got. This is the setup. And it's, it's, it's not so much to take an empathetic eye, but to understand that their repression is creating these images. And we can't read them through the repressive image that they're telling us because that's how that works. It creates false images. Obama's a communist. There's a secret police that are going to fix things. Donald Trump's leading them because he's a big, strong man who doesn't definitely wear diapers. Uh, like, this is the, the place they're living, but we can't read them through that. That's the repression. That's the, they've, they've got the illegitimate and transcendent uses of the syntheses, according to which the unconscious can no longer operate in accordance with its own constituent machines. So the, the idea of us, like schizoanalysts, the schizo police, whatever we want to call ourselves, the, the idea is not so much to just read people, which is the classic psychoanalytic way, but instead to really talk about the material conditions of their desiring machines, their connections, and their social machines, find where the breakdowns are, destroy the molar connections, and build new ones for the molecular. Can I just vote we never call ourselves schizo-anything? I'm going to call ourselves the schizo-police, and I'm going to give us a 1980s fucking like, theme song, and it's going to be an intro, and we're all going to be dogs. And that's a Saturday morning cartoon, the schizo-police. But I want to say something about, you know, we're always talking about the bad guys, but social sciences does that as well, not listening to people directly. For example, anthropology would actually talk to, you know, one guy from one community or one woman from one community, and they will they will not listen directly to what the person is saying. She, they will say, oh, you know, that's the parental structure being, you know, explained to us through this mundane formulation of words into a sentence. No, motherfucker, you need to listen to what they're saying because, you know, it's, it's the same thing. It's We have the same weird way of, you know, taking a structure in the back and, like, just cookie cutting on people and this is my old criticism when i say cookie cutting it's exactly this and it's it's listening and it's not representing it right because that's yes. the other thing right like psychoanalysis will it's like with the the example of the terrorist right like there's a way in which psychoanalysis could very easily listen to that and say oh okay we've got it so like this is a death drive manifestation of uh, anxiety because of a lost time in uh I don't know, in Saudi Arabia or whatever. Like, you see how that, that works, right? The representation replaces the, um, uh, the what's what we're actually should be listening to. Yeah, and it's even better when the subject isn't around to testify because then you have this whole great sort of like counterfactual discourse where you're like, well, they're dead, but we're going to tell you why they did what they did. It's for the following reason. So it's almost worse for them when the person survives because then like it kind of confounds the ability to pin down it you know the narrative on a specific thing or or simply say this person is crazy or mad or i mean they'll still do that and they'll have success but i think it's poses a problem for the discourse and this that's the same for social research a lot of people will not actually write and go back to with to the people which they wrote about and have them you know look at the text and see if it's accurate or not why because we're lying 
you know, and that's what social re research is doing. It's confirming certain things, but we don't want it to be like really close to the people and want the people to really participate. On the other end, when you start to do this, you do really fuzzy kind of research. And I think, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I've done. That's an attempt. I, I was sure that I would fail, but, you know, it kind of worked out. But uh, yeah, that's that's and that's why now, you know, when we're saying, oh, we need to amplify the voice of people, we need to do this, we need to do that. And it appears to be radical, which is a really basic thing. This is what we should be doing at all time. But what social sciences are doing right now, they're stealing the voice out of people to reframe them into a certain manner to prove certain points. And that's that's the huge problem within academia. Cannibal metaphysics when, Roger? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I, I got a copy. So whenever we want to go down that rabbit hole. I'm there. God damn, it's a good book. Would be, that, that would be perfect. Because, you know, like if we want to link Deleuze to like anthropology, that's a perfect link to do it. You know, and I think there's a lot of fuzziness to this writing. But I think it's it's really interesting because it, it taps more into ontologies than epistemologies. And that was my, uh, you know, that was one of my first ways into this subject. So I think I think we should definitely go into that book one day. Maybe maybe post AO. I mean, it would be a great antidote to a lot of the problems we probably have had with this text. Oh yes, and it's really contested too. You know, it's not something that is uh, widely accepted. All right. So uh, before I turn off the recording. I'm just going to ask one last question. And I'd love everyone to give a shot. I think actually the last thing I said might be my answer, so I'm just going to leave it in. Um, what is the first task? Schizoanalysis, first positive task. A lot of paragraphs on that, a lot of pages. What is first positive task? Positive task, though, comes with the negative task of destruction. What is the task? Becoming plumber. <laughs> there you go. So, uh... Let's start with the okay, quote, so page 338. Here are the desiring machines with their three parts, the working parts, the immobile motor, the adjacent part. There are three forms of energy, libido, numen, and voluptus, and their three syntheses, the connective syntheses of partial objects and flows, the disjunctive syntheses of singularities and chains, and the conjunctive syntheses of intensities and becomings. The schizoanalysis, excuse me, the schizoanalyst is not an interpreter, even less a theater director. He is a mechanic, a micro-mechanic. There are no excavations to be undertaken, no archaeology, no statues in the unconscious. There are only stones to be sucked out of Beckett and other machinic elements belonging to deterritorialized constellations. The task of schizoanalysis is that of learning what a subject's desire machines are, how they work, with what syntheses, what bursts of energies in the machine, what constituent misfires, with what flows, what chains, and what becomings in each case. Moreover, this positive task cannot be separated from indispensable destructions, the destruction of the molar aggregates, the structures and representations that prevent the machines from functioning. Um, in the unconscious, it is not the lines of pressure that matter, but on the contrary, the lines of escape. So like, yeah, if we want to summarize this, right, like the, so like the positive task is one taking into uh, account the, the syllogisms and paralogisms, right? 
engaging matters and engaging what's going on imminently. Yeah. In terms of like um, the desire machines and how the unconscious is producing it and this passive way. In the negative sense, there's a way in which blockages, uh, representations, and even structures uh, are going to be blown up, right? And this is going to make room for the syllogisms um, to, to operate more fully, shall we say. Uh, to that point, I really like this last sentence. On the unconscious, it is not the lines of pressure that matter, but on the contrary, the lines of escape. I like that line, too, because with that schizoanalysis also... As far as I can tell, it's going to help with this idea of deterritorializing and decoding, this idea of like taking a piece of structure with you as this line of escape takes you um, upon the body without organs, right? And out of the, um, out of the problem of the socius's uh, uh, conditionings. I do want to take a second because um, I know that we've had the joke about the stone sucking it's actually a really interesting uh, callback to the second page of the book. Um, the, in, the second page basically has a lot of Malone Malloy, Samuel Beckett rap. Well, Lisa Lickmoss, when they were tra- stranded in the Board of the Flies episode, uh, and she was cast out because she wouldn't eat meat, being vegetarian, Board of the Flies scenario. Funny. Um, the, the okay, so basically, Horses to lick stones because we're vegans. Uh, no, sucks. the The stones is is a scene from Malloy, and uh, it's a long couple paragraphs about how he has a bunch of stones that he sucks on, and he's just got them in his pockets, and how he sort of moves them around between his pockets. Uh, page three of the text, actually, uh, being confronted with a complete machine made up of six stones in the right hand pocket of my coat, the pocket that serves as the source of the stones. Five stones in the right-hand pocket of my trousers, five in the left-hand pocket, with the remaining pocket of my coat receiving the stones that have already been handled. Each of the stones moves forward one pocket. How can we determine the effect of this circuit of distribution, and this is their take on it, in which the mouth, too, plays a role as a stone-sucking machine? Uh, In Malloy, it's a long... It's literally that. It's him describing how he moves the stones between the different pockets, what his process is, and ultimately placing them in his mouth. Their argument is actually, no, it's, there's a mouth too, plays a role in the stone sucking machine. This entire circuit, where do we find the production of sexual pleasure? Where, where do these things happen in this story? And it's a really interesting sort of tale of it's not always just sucking stones, but it is a stone sucking machine. Yeah, that's kind of it, right? Because like, so like uh, there's a way in which psychoanalysis would look at that and say, oh, he, you've got an oral fixation, right? Like there's a psychosexual problem there. But their point is like, no, not necessarily, right? Like there's a whole process, right? Like it's not necessarily a rational, rational problem, but more to the sense of like, there's a way in which this is being produced and it's not necessarily like a problem with sexuality. Um, it's something that's actively desired, and well, it's, the, the scene the scene is a neurotic one where the character is talking about sort of he's got all these pockets and he's not super satisfied with the idea of just taking out all four putting them in his mouth sucking on four stones taking them out putting them back in that pocket he's got he wants to develop the system this machine of stone sucking and over time he just it's it's this neurotic demand that he finds a way that satisfies him with all four of his pockets sort of in use and that he feels like he can get one 
and he feels like he could have a process for his, ah, fuck it, I'm bored, what else can I do? It literally ends with him saying fuck it. Uh, or maybe not literally, but I'm pretty sure that's the end of the scene. Um, and so it's this, like, neuro neurotic demand uh, for the uh, machine of stone sucking. I'll, I'll, I'll copy it in. Uh, I think I'm going to say that we're done here, though, because this has gone now two and a half hours, and uh, I'm going to just uh, say... I'm going to end on stone sucking. Thank all of you for joining us for our review. Next week, we will, we will be moving into 4.5. Uh, new month, new everything, ending the year out. Uh, probably 4.5 is going to be the rest of the year. Let's see what happens. Thanks so much.